Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Raghu Mermira. He's in the section of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Uh, he's a professor of medicine, all associated with the University of Chicago. And he's working on uh, type 1 diabetes-related research, uh, specifically the biology of the, the islet cells in the pancreas. So, Raghu, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, if you would tell me in your own words, what's your research about? We're actually coming up next year on the um, 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Uh, and that really changed the lives for people with type 1 diabetes when, when insulin was discovered by Banting and Best. What we learned um, since uh, treating people with type 1 diabetes uh, over the years is that it is a disease where the immune system attacks the insulin-producing beta cells. So I'll just call them beta cells, but they're the cells that produce insulin. And, um, and really that sort of perspective has persisted for almost uh, all of the last hundred years. In the last 10 years, partly uh, because of my research, partly because of the research of some of my colleagues, we, we discovered that the autoimmune response is not really the only thing that, that triggers type one diabetes. And uh, what we've been learning um, these last 10 years or so is that the beta cell itself uh, appears to send signals that actually activate the immune system. And so what that means is that if we wanna prevent the disease for sure, we need to think about how the beta cell is turning on these signals and what we can do to prevent that from happening. And, and we think that there's probably a component in the environment that's related to turning on the signal in the beta cell. There could be other components, uh, for example, genetics that, that we're still only beginning to identify. But we think it's probably a combination of the genetics and the environment. I would guess people are born with type 1 diabetes, but then there's a latency period. I guess some people as early as six months and some people 10, 15 years, maybe longer. Like, Why do you think there's that latency period? Yeah, so that goes exactly to the point that I was trying to make, and that is that we think that there's probably something in the environment. And, you know, people have been thinking about what that environmental sort of factor is. There could be, for example, a virus that, that just hits you at a particular time in your life, and that's what triggers it. It could be what you eat uh, or drink. So when we think of environment, we think of, you know, those things that that, that impact our day-to-day -day life that we could potentially change or avoid, uh, but that, you know, uh, kind of hit us in, at, at points that we just never thought about. Um, so, you know, there could have been a particular infection that you had that then started the process rolling. So there's actually a, a big national study that's been going on for quite some time now. It's called TEDDY. Uh, and that is the um, Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young. That's what TEDDY is an acronym for. 
And um, and that study is what we call a birth cohort. So they they take individuals from the time of birth and follow them until about 16 years of age. And um, and they look for, um, you know, they, they collect blood and they, they do histories and physicals all along the way. And, and the goal of that study is to try to figure out what that environmental trigger is and why it can be so different in some people, as you point out, you know, as early as maybe a few months to a year to as, you know, late as the teens. And what we now know is that it can happen even as late into adulthood, you know, in your 50s and 60s, too. Really? Huh, interesting. Have you been able to get any uh, pancreatic beta cells from people while they're alive? Just study them, culture them, look at them? Yeah, that's a, that is an unfortunate limitation of what we do. You know, <laughs> imagine if you studied, you know, gastrointestinal disease or even liver disease or, you know, eye disease or lung disease. You could probably go in and get samples of tissues without being too terribly invasive or certainly without um, putting the person's um, life at risk. But unfortunately, getting a beta cell from a live person is virtually impossible. So what we've been doing instead um, in the last few years is we've been um, creating these beta cells from those individuals. And so they're called induced pluripotent stem cell derived beta cells. So it's a mouthful. But literally, we can take a sample of blood or we can take a scraping from your mouth or from your skin, and then we can culture those cells and then convert them into beta cells. And then we can study those cells. Um, They're not exactly the same as the beta cells you have, but they're pretty darn close. So it's really been a new technology that's revolutionized. And the person who figured this out, creating cells that can become beta cells or any other cell type, you know, got the Nobel Prize for that discovery, as you can probably imagine. But why not look at the uh, outlet duct of the pancreas that would carry the newly produced insulin to the rest of the body and sample that and look for extracellular vesicles and all kinds of other stuff that, uh, you know, would probably be produced by the beta cells and other cells too in that area and see what you see there. That's a great question. So let me tell you a little bit about the pancreas, and then maybe you can understand why that's, uh, that's an issue. So the pancreas is actually two organs in one, which is kind of unusual. There's an organ that helps you in digesting your food, and that's what we call the exocrine pancreas. And, and all of the exocrine secretions are what get dumped into the gut, and they help digest the food. And then um, there's a component of the pancreas called the endocrine pancreas. So exo means outside. So it's dumping the enzymes outside of your body into your gut. And endo means inside, meaning that it's releasing these proteins into the body. And the endocrine pancreas is the pancreas that produces insulin. So insulin and the beta cells don't release any of their products into the duct they release it into the bloodstream. So that's why there's two different types of organs built into one in the pancreas. So it's a, it's a complex organ in that way. So really the only way to kind of sample the beta cell is you know, hopefully seeing whatever it releases into the circulation. Um, so you can measure things in the blood and we do that. Yeah, can you locally tap into any of the vessels that would just be at the outlet? And if you did that, why not look at the duct products versus the localized bloods, you know, blood products? And then you might 
be able to separate out any you know any overlap of cells and function in the pancreas. So what we can do, you know, it's kind of tough because of the way the the plumbing goes, right? Um, you know, the pancreas releases all of its um, contents into what's called the portal vein, and then the portal vein goes into the liver, and then the liver goes into the whole bloodstream. So to get into the portal vein is a pretty difficult thing to do, and you can't do it without, you know, very, you know, invasive procedure. So measuring what's coming out of the beta cell is only part of the story, right? Um, the majority of the story is actually what's happening in the cell itself. And so um, there's nothing that we can measure that comes out of the cell that necessarily tells us what's happening in the cell. And so really the, the challenge we have in this field is how do we get those cells from a live person and then really study them? We can't. The bottom line is we just can't do it. And so the only way we get those cells is from organ donors uh, or by the other technique that I mentioned, which is you know converting other cells of your body into beta cells and studying those. There's limitations to both of them. But here we are, it's 2020, 100 years after the discovery of insulin, and it's amazing we can do what we can do right now. Uh, but it's also understandable that we haven't cured this disease because of these really difficult limitations. So what is your estimation of some of the signaling that goes on that causes the immune response? Is there any, yeah, so that's any, a, any knowledge there? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that's what we've been studying. So, you know, because of it's so hard to study the human, we, we resort to animal models. And, you know, the great thing about animal models is that they have a pancreas, they release insulin, and they even can get type 1 diabetes. In our group, study two types of animals, the mouse and believe it or not, the fish. And both of these animals um, you know, have pancreas and they release insulin and we can isolate live beta cells from these animals. And, um, and what we've learned about studying these is that there is a what we call a stress cascade in the beta cell. So whenever the environment sends a signal to the beta cell that's a negative signal, the beta cell starts producing these emergency proteins within, within the cell itself. These emergency proteins then basically get produced at such a level that they start to become disorganized. And um, when they become disorganized, there's really no place for a lot of these proteins to go. They can get destroyed within the beta cell, but some of these proteins actually leave the beta cell. Um, you know, literally they get put onto the cell surface of the beta cell. And, and these proteins, because they get so disorganized, don't look like normal proteins to the immune system. And then the immune system looks at the beta cell having these disorganized proteins as being, you know, an invading cell type. And that's what triggers the immune response. And then the immune response comes back and attacks these cells thinking that they're not your own cells. They, they think it's an invading cell type. And that's what ends up causing type 1 diabetes. And that's why it's only those beta cells that get destroyed. So what we've so really been uh, studying is the, these, these proteins. Yeah. So I guess in the manufacture of the proteins inside cells, I'm sure there's guiding molecules that fold them properly. And those correct. are uh, corrupted or missing or their function is not right. That You're absolutely correct. They're corrupted. They're missing. They're not functioning. Or they're just overwhelmed. Right? So any of those is happening. And, and, and that's what's causing the cell to, 
to look different to the immune system. And, and the immune system, that's, that's its job. It's, it's a surveillance system that's constantly going through your body and asking, is everything in order? If it's not in order, it needs to be removed. So what other conditions you know, are similar where there's misfolding of proteins inside the cell? So it turns out that a lot of immune diseases um, behave the same way. So it's not just type 1 diabetes. So um, there are um, other disorders such as psoriasis, um, celiac disease, thyroid disease, adrenal disease, all of these things where the immune system actually attacks those particular organs, it functions the same way. So it's not just the beta cell. So interestingly, when you study one immune disorder, many of those, you know, that knowledge is applicable to other uh, immune disorders. And so the ones that I just told you about turn out to be often um, grouped together. So if a person has a tendency to generate one kind of autoimmune disease, they're at risk for other autoimmune diseases. And so many of these things go together in the same individual, certainly in the same family. You can see that. That's terrible. Hmm. Yeah. So are there any other uh, coincidence, uh, immune conditions that happen most frequently with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, there's several. So um, celiac disease, right? Gluten intolerance, for example. Um, You can see thyroid disease, um, either overactive or underactive thyroid. You can see, um, you know, other disorders such as um, what we call pernicious anemia. That's where you can't absorb vitamin B12. All of these are autoimmune diseases. And, you know, um, there are other autoimmune diseases that don't often go with type 1 diabetes, but will behave similarly, such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. Do any of these uh, conditions happen first and then type 1 will happen? Are there any leading or lagging associated ones? That's another great question. In some cases, there are certain autoimmune diseases that type 1 diabetes is not associated with. And then there are some that type 1 diabetes is associated with. The ones that it is associated with, type 1 diabetes can occur at any point. It can either occur as the first manifestation or it can occur as you know one of the later manifestations. But it doesn't always occur among these autoimmune uh, disorders. And so... You know, in the field of autoimmunity, we actually can begin separating different forms of autoimmune syndromes, and we do. And, um, and many of them are familial, so they, they run in families. And then in most cases, most autoimmune diseases just happen by themselves without any other autoimmune disease. So we see both. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering about gluten intolerance and celiac, if those uh, happen maybe months or years before type 1, or again, uh, you know, I guess type 1 may lead to those as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I typically see celiac disease occurring after the development of type 1 diabetes. And so, you know, in kids in particular uh, with type 1 diabetes, we actually screen for celiac disease for the simple reason that, you know, if you have celiac disease, you can't absorb certain nutrients. And when you're a kid growing, it's important that you have all those nutrients or you stop growing. So in children, we'll often be just screening for the presence of celiac, even if there's no uh, concurrent 
symptoms. So if somebody has type 1 diabetes, then we often automatically screen at least every couple of years for celiac and even thyroid disease. Has it been identified what substances are responsible for helping fold proteins of any sort inside of a cell? Is there a certain organelle that does it? Or So, you know, you'll have to go back to basically high school cell biology. And um, they're inside of a cell, there are different structures called organelles. And um, you may have heard of a couple of these organelles. One is called the endoplasmic reticulum. Uh, another one is called the Golgi body. And, um, and these two organelles are responsible for uh, having the right conditions to fold the proteins. So the proteins get produced literally right on the endoplasmic reticulum, and then they get sent into the endoplasmic reticulum where you know the conditions of pH and buffer and, and, and then other proteins that we call chaperones that help fold are all present. You know, the cell has a limited space in the endoplasmic reticulum and limited chaperone proteins. So if a, a cell is stressed and has to produce a lot of protein, you can imagine that, you know, the, the, the pH of the, the endoplasmic reticulum can change. You know, you may not have enough chaperone proteins lying around. And so when you overwhelm the system, then proper folding doesn't occur. And then these proteins then get you know, misfolded or disorganized, and then they get presented on the surface of uh, the beta cell. And that can be a, a, an unfortunate subsequent response is the immune activation. Well, I'm sure everyone is looking for a, uh, you know, a genetic source always first. So you're talking about overwhelm, which is good. That's a different factor, different way. What would cause overwhelm? So um, let me give you a couple of examples. Imagine a cell were infected um, with a virus, right? Um, you know, it could be something like the SARS virus, right? Which we're currently dealing with. When cells get infected um, with viruses, the viruses themselves have genetic information that um, forces, that literally hijacks the cell and makes the cell produce more viral protein, right? And that means that the cell now has to produce its own proteins, but then is literally hijacked to produce all these viral proteins. And now they're producing more proteins than they normally would produce. That overwhelms the cell. And so its own normal proteins don't really get an opportunity to partake of these chaperones and so forth. So that's one example, right, of where a cell can get overwhelmed. There are other similar examples. Um, you don't have to think of viruses. Um, it could be inflammation. So um, there are mediators of inflammation that circulate in the body. Um, if you had a bacterial infection or you just ate, you know, some food that, you know, was maybe didn't agree with you, you can see elevations in these um, inflammatory proteins. They then um, signal to the cell and tell the cell, you got to fight this inflammation. And again, the cell ends up having to produce proteins that normally wouldn't, and then it gets overwhelmed. So how do you know that there's uh, this escape of these misfolded proteins and, you know, they've been sampled and w where did they go in the body and do they have a function or a bad function? Yeah. So the way autoimmunity generally works, whether you're talking about type one or any other autoimmune disease is that when these misfolded proteins are, um, expressed, if you will, on the surface of the cell, 
the surveilling immune system. There are cells in the surveilling immune system that literally kind of touch and feel each cell. And then when they kind of go to one cell and then recognize that there are proteins on that cell that are not normal, what that then does is it causes those surveilling immune cells to uh, react and then um, they change their signals. Then they go to um, a region like a lymph node and then tell the lymph node, hey, look at the protein that I found. Here's a sample of it. It literally takes a sample of that protein, presents it to other cells in that lymph node. And then the lymph node goes crazy, right? Starts to produce all of these attacking immune cells. And that's part of the reason why when we have an infection or we have an immune response, we can get swollen glands. Those are actually lymph nodes that are, that are reactive. And, um, and then those reactive cells are literally educated to recognize the cells that have this unusual protein. So then they get released back into the circulation and then they start looking for that cell that contains this protein and they'll find it. And when they find it, they start to accumulate around it and then eventually kill them off. Huh, and that's, that's the way all immune diseases work. And so just imagine if that cell happened to be an invading bacterium or virus, right? The immune system surveilled it, recognized unusual proteins, triggered the rest of the immune system, which then goes and attacks it. So that's a normal thing. And that's how we survive. What's abnormal is when our own normal cells begin to produce these abnormal proteins. And then, that, then it's a problem. Is there other mechanisms by which the immune system recognizes the, you know, the cells in addition to these misfolded proteins? What about uh, you know, antigen presentation on the membrane of the beta cells? Are there any other signaling that goes on? Well, so you, you bring up antigen presentation. I, I, what I really described was antigen presentation. You know, these misfolded proteins are antigens. And when they're expressed on the surface of a cell, that's presenting them. So that's okay. the formal process of antigen presentation. Oh, I it's thought a, they just more left, the, left the cell. I didn't know that they, they sat up. No, no, the they're, they're literally sitting on the surface of the cell. They don't leave the cell. You can imagine if they actually just left the cell and floated around, then the problem the immune system has is it doesn't know where it came from. So it won't know which cell to go back and attack, right? So these misfolded proteins are presented in the context of the cell surface of these cells. And, and that's antigen presentation. And the cells that surveil um, are called antigen presenting cells. So in other words, they basically go find that antigen and then they take a copy of that antigen and then send it to the local lymph node, which then allows the, the cells within the lymph node to be educated that this is a bad guy. Look for this. So again, why do you think that uh, this would happen at a certain point in a person's life? What, you know, you said it could be diet, it could be other factors. Is there maybe an accumulation of epigenetic marks again, because of diet and other factors, same ones that now, uh, you know, change the function of that cell. So it, it creates a lot of misfolded proteins. So we don't entirely know. What we do believe is, I'm not sure about epigenetic marks, but because with type 1 diabetes, you know, type 2 diabetes is a little different. There is a lot of epigenetic transmission of that disease, but type 1, it appears to be more genetic than epigenetic, meaning that there are probably certain genes 
or gene um, variants uh, that are more likely associated with type 1 diabetes that increase your risk. I, I think the way to think about this, honestly, is that it's not enough to have whatever is in the environment to cause type 1 diabetes, and it's not enough to have the gene. If you have them both, it's probably still not enough because I think everything has to happen at exactly the right time. You know, you need to be hit by this environmental trigger at a most susceptible time in your life. And, and, um, and that could vary from individual to individual, and we don't know what that level of susceptibility is. But really think of everything as, as a uh, probability, right? Uh, that is that your chance, your probability of randomly developing type 1 diabetes is maybe just a little less than 1%, okay? If you have a brother or sister with type 1 diabetes, that probability goes up to maybe 5%, okay? Which is about a 10 times increase. So 5% to most people, you know, that means there's a 95% chance you won't get the disease. So the likelihood is still pretty low, but 5% is still pretty significant. You know, I think we just have to think of the disease as, as one of those things that's very hard to predict who will get it because of, you know, the probabilistic nature of all of the different components, you know, happening at the right time. i give you a good example is uh, identical twins. They have, they're identical because they're, they're genetically the same, right? They get, most identical twins get raised in almost the same environment, right? They're living in the same household. They typically eat the same food. They go to the same schools. They travel together. Despite all of the commonalities between a pair of identical twins, if one of them gets type 1 diabetes, there's only about a 40 to 50% chance that the other one gets type 1. Now, 40 to 50% is a pretty high percentage on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, considering they're identical, it's kind of surprising it's only 40 to 50%, right? So there's a bit of a chance factor in all of this as well. Have people who have gotten it very young versus people that have gotten it when they're much older have been looked at to see differences. You know, what if you look at, I mean, you mentioned celiac and other issues, gluten tolerance. So I think microbiome would play a very big role. So has the microbiome of people with type one been looked at, you know, as they progress when they get it? It has. I'll be honest, there hasn't been a lot there that people have found. I mean, there are differences. I mean, there's, there's a lot of differences in microbiome between one person and another, but nothing that we could hang our hat on People have asked the question, why does somebody get it in their 40s and 50s and somebody get it in their teens? Well, there's a simple answer to that. And then there's a complex answer to that. The simple answer to it is simply that every person is different and there is going to be a different path to getting the disease for any given person. So that's the simple answer. Uh, It may not be the satisfying answer, but it's a simple one. The complex answer, um, well, that's a little bit different. That's what we call this concept of endotypes. And that is that, that different groups of people develop diabetes in slightly different ways. And, you know, there are people with a certain confluence of genetic changes who lead a life a certain way or might have a certain ethnic background, you know, are likely to get it at an early age versus at a later age. So, that's a more complex way of looking at it. 
um, you know, the simpler ways to just say that, you know, people are different. So, and no one size fits all. So we used to think that when it came to type one diabetes that everyone developed it the same way and one size sort of fits all. What does fit all is that insulin is really the only therapy for type one diabetes. What doesn't fit all is how do you prevent the disease and potentially, you know, arguably reverse the disease. And I think that's where the differences are going to lie. How do you want to uh, be an influence in, in type one? What do you in particular try to figure out? My passion revolves around really understanding those signals at the molecular level in the beta cell that causes these proteins to be misfolded and misexpressed. I do believe, you know, if you look at most people with type 1 diabetes, you'll find that their, you know, autoreactive cells of the immune system seem to be responding to similar, if not identical, antigens. And so what that tells me is that at the very molecular and fundamental level, the process is probably the same in almost everybody. It's just that it's happening at a different time. It's happening at a different rate. And, and it may be happening as a result of a different trigger. But notwithstanding the timing, the rate, the trigger, at the molecular level, they all tend to be similar, if not identical. And that's really what I'm trying to find because I'll let the other really smart people figure out the timing and the, the, the other aspects of it. Um, and if I could develop a molecular therapy, a drug that can um, help you know, folding of these proteins or uh, reduce the stress the beta cell experiences, um, I think the chances of preventing diabetes is pretty high in anybody, in any comer. Do you know how many different types of proteins are misfolded? Is it hundreds or is it just a few? Is there like a critical linchpin well, one? That's a, you know. there's, a, there's a few that are a critical linchpin. And then there's a thing that happens you know, an immunology called antigen spreading. So if you start a process, then it cascades. And when it cascades, you'll find that almost every protein becomes an antigen and they're autoreactive T cells to every protein. That's a problem. But that's when you're looking very late in the course of a disease process. But when you look early, you'll find that, you know, there's a discrete number, maybe a dozen two dozen at the most proteins that seem to start the process. For one, you know, insulin itself is perhaps one of the most common proteins that trigger type 1 diabetes. When it gets misfolded or mispresented, um, that alone is enough to trigger type 1 diabetes in many people. So we think the number is probably few. So insulin itself can be misfolded? Yes, absolutely. Oh. What happens to it when it is? Is it totally ineffective? Does it just become garbage? It is, like it, a misfolded mis insulin is an ineffective insulin. So it doesn't cause blood sugar lowering like it should, but it can be antigenic. It can, it can activate the immune system. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Is there like a left-handed and right-handed insulin? Are there any other uh, variants of it that are important or that are produced? No, not... Not quite left and right-handed. Instead, insulin, um, you know, um, in fact, uh, insulin is produced in a precursor form uh, called proinsulin. And that's the earliest form of insulin. Proinsulin is produced in the cell, but it has no biologic activity. 
uh, it has to get properly folded and then what we call spliced. And what we've learned is that when the cell is under stress, it doesn't get folded and it doesn't get spliced. And, um, and this pro-insulin and peptides derived from pro-insulin can be very antigenic and can um, trigger the immune response. Wait, this is like a really complicated puzzle, but if it wasn't, it wouldn't take so much work and effort to fix it. So. <laughs> well, look at where we've come in a hundred years, right? <laughs> From the discovery of insulin to all the molecular aspects that we know. And while I think many people with type one diabetes, and, and I can completely understand it, are just really frustrated that there isn't more than just insulin to treat the disease. What we've learned is that, you know, we've come a long way. We've learned so much about how insulin is produced how the beta cell functions and how type one diabetes develops that it really emphasizes we've got, you know, we've still got more work to do. Yeah. Well, very good. Very good. Where's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Well, first off, we, we publish all of our research. So I, I do have publications and you can find them in the national library of medicine. Uh, you can search for me in PubMed or Google scholar. You can find my original research, but I also have a website here at uh, the University of Chicago, where we kind of describe our research in general and the, and the people in my lab who do the research, because they're really the scientists. And, and that's described on my lab's website. Uh, it's at voices.uchicago.edu slash Lab. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.